All will be a passing moment in our Savior's victory song. It's way easier to sing that than to believe it. In the midst of suffering, it sure doesn't feel like a passing moment. We know in light of eternity, we'll look back and it'll see look that way. But, but in the midst of it, it's so hard to say that and really mean it and really believe it. Well, we have a passage before us this morning in Luke chapter 7 that is going to help us to be persevering people in the midst of suffering. So much of the Bible helps us with this challenge of perseverance in the midst of suffering, but Jesus helps us so beautifully this morning in Luke chapter 18. If you turn there in your Bible, did I say somewhere else? Just ignore that first one, Luke chapter 18. I actually just preached out of Luke 7 last week at another church. So there you go. Luke chapter 18 is where we are. Jesus helps us so beautifully here to persevere. Let's pray as we go to God's word. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the nourishment it provides every time we go to it, whether it's perceptible to us or not. We trust that your word is as you say it is fruitful every time we ingest it. So Lord, as we take part in going to your word and feasting on it this morning from the very words of Jesus, we pray that you would help us to be more persevering people, that you'd help us to know who you are better, know who we are better, and know what this life means and should look like for those of us who are your chosen ones. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's read Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Luke 18, 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he, the judge, refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. (laughs) And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, He will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Well, let me speak to the elephant in the living room or the walking boot in the sanctuary. Um, I wasn't going to wear this this morning, actually. I was going to take it off weeks before I was supposed to because I didn't want it to be a distraction. It's part of my problem, and I have a big problem. You can blame it on my father and his father for a pattern of dealing with physical ailments in a way that tries to act like they're not there. But 
I, I have a hard time making my physical issues an issue for several reasons. Some of it's pride, some of it's humility, some of it's impatience, and some of it's just being bored with it, not wanting to talk about it all the time. But, but I was really convicted in preparing this sermon because if you were to go online and see me preaching two weeks ago in Florida and last weekend at High Desert Church in Victorville, you would see that I don't have this walking boot on. I have a regular shoe on, even though that is directly against doctor's orders. Now, I've been having great conversations with my surgeon. Dr. Richardson may be watching this morning. I've got it on, sir, as you can see. Um, but, but I was really convicted because I was thinking about my mentality as long as I can remember toward things like this. <laughs> and I thought about the process of going through pain. And some of you probably have observed since the fall that I haven't quite been myself physically. There, there was a time, I'm sure some of you looked at me in September and October, and I looked like I was close to death. Some people wondered that, actually. Well, let me just say what happened. I got salmonella poisoning, speaking at a men's conference in San Diego, insufficient, insufficiently cooked chicken taco, was to blame for the salmonella poisoning that I and 30 other men at the conference got, and two wives, because two of the men smuggled home tacos for their wives. Busted, right? Busted. For, so, but I got that, and you know, that's like a six-week affair, and it was, it was brutal, just brutal. And then, as that was just starting to go away with like a week and a half left, I got a bizarre reaction to salmonella poisoning that about 20% of men get called reactive arthritis. That was the worst sickness I've had in my life for a protracted period of time. I lost a lot of weight, and I, was, I couldn't even get out of bed. It was debilitating. I couldn't walk without crutches for a while, and it was just bizarre. And that, that lasted about three and a half, four months. And, and then this ankle that I broke in college on a kickoff return thought I had a touchdown my sophomore year of college, but instead I got a compound dislocation and a surgical repair. But they told me, we fixed it, you're going to be fine. I actually ended up playing six more years, uh, and I got faster. But they said, in your 50s, this is going to quit on you. They were right. <laughs> they were right. So it quit on me, and... And for the last couple of years, it's been really painful, and I finally waved the white flag. And I got an ankle replacement a few weeks ago. It wasn't even a technology available not that long ago. So I'm very grateful for a new ankle. But it was just a few weeks ago, and, and I'm actually supposed to be on crutches. They're over there. But, so I'm not quite fulfilling what I wanted to do this morning. But, but, but here I am in this walking boot, and the, here's why I was convicted about it. One of the reasons I don't like making an issue about the things I've been going through is because they all had a diagnosed end in sight, right? The, the salmonella lasts about a month, maybe more. The, the reactive arthritis, they said, three to 12 months. This, you know, I'll be back to normal probably in six months, you know? I'm hoping earlier than that. But there's an end in sight, and I couldn't stop thinking about so many of you who don't have an end in sight. You don't have a time period where it's highly likely this challenge you're in is going to be over. Some of you have physical, spiritual, emotional, relational, financial challenges where there's a complete uncertainty about an end at all. 
And so I, I felt guilty for making an issue out of this because, because as, as challenging and wearisome as it can be to be going through trials, when there's a clear prescribed, described end in sight, it's so much easier to go through, isn't it? And, and I couldn't ever feel an ounce of being sorry for myself because so many of you have things in your lives where there's no end in sight. But here's what I thought about this week as we are going to dive into this passage. There's an end in sight. No matter what you're going through, for all of us who are God's chosen people, his children, there is an end in sight. Even if in this life, there isn't one for you, there is one for you in the next life, in the kingdom to come, in the resolution of all things we've been beautifully singing about all this morning. There is an end in sight. I'm not in a different category in this than those of you who have a much more severe, protracted suffering on your plate. We're all in this together. And as I was about to get up here to preach to you on being persevering and leaning into the suffering, not trying to ignore it and act like it's not there, I couldn't come up here without my walking boot. <laughs> I had to put it on. I hated it. But, but we all have, most of the time it's not visible, it's not obvious. But there's an end in sight for all of us, and that's what Jesus is challenging us to believe and live out this morning. Did you hear this amazing parable he tells again? It's a continuation of what's come before in Randy's sermon he preached last week in this passage, where this question of when the coming of the kingdom will finally happen. And Jesus wants them to be patient, and he says, so it's going to be like God showing up the way he does dramatically in the Old Testament when things were just normal. Do you have an ability to be patient in the normalcy of it all? And then this idea of the end time coming, the, the coming of the kingdom, the resolution, the restoration of all things coming, is continued in our passage this morning. And so he tells them this parable, and unlike other parables that sometimes he tells so people who aren't willing to work won't get it, and sometimes it's pretty hard to unravel what the parable's about. Jesus wants no question about what it's about. I think, as we saw in the previous passage we heard last week, he's directing this in an ongoing way to the disciples. So he's talking to his disciples still, I believe, and he's saying... Will you persevere? He knows that these disciples, and he knows that all disciples, ourselves included, will face deep challenges in this fallen world and persecution. And he wants us to be ready. He wanted them to be ready, and so he's fortifying them with this parable. And he tells us what the point is in the first verse. How great is that? And he told them a parable to the effect, for the purpose of, that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. That's the point. Don't lose heart. Keep going. Don't quit. It'll be hard, but it'll all be worth it, he's saying. It'll all seem like a slight and momentary affliction when you get to the end of it all and look back on it and think about eternity. So keep going. Don't lose heart, don't grow weary, don't quit, don't throw in the towel. And how do you do that? By continually praying. Always praying. A pattern of your life. 
the foundation of your life. Don't lose heart in persevering prayer. That's the point. Always pray. Don't lose heart. So, obviously Jesus believes we're going to be tempted to lose heart, to grow weary, to persevere. And I take great comfort in the the fact that the Bible so frequently encourages us to keep going. So often the basic message of the Bible is keep going. Don't quit. Implication, we're going to be tempted to quit. We're going to be tempted to veer off the path. We're going to be tempted to seek other gods besides the true God. We're going to seek other ways besides his way. We're going to be influenced by a culture, persecuted by a culture. We're going to be opposed by a culture. We're going to go weak and weary in a fallen world. And there is going to be great challenge. We're going to lose heart. Why? Because we're limited. We're finite. We're frail. We get tired. Isn't it amazing? You don't sleep for 16 hours and suddenly the fruit of the Spirit goes on a vacation. It's amazing to me. You miss a meal and your blood sugar lowers and you're just cranky. We're frail, we're finite, we struggle, we battle life as finite creatures. And then add to that the fallenness of the world in which we live, and we now have a relentless difficulty, a pain in part of this cursed world that adds a depth of suffering and groaning that makes our mere limited finitude seem like nothing. Now now it's brutal, it's difficult in life in this fallen world. And then my own sin adds to the problem, and yours does too. And then the spiritual warfare that's raging around us all the time, and the persecution that comes from without, all make us worn out. And the, the internet has just given us what's been called compassion fatigue. And it also, we just get worn out, and we wake up in the morning, and we start reading the news, and we, we, we've, we've are fed news of people fighting and conflict because that's what gets people to pay attention to, to news. And before you know it, we're exhausted, and we're weary, and we just want to spend the rest of our lives playing video games. We're anesthetizing the weariness with substances. We're we're different idolatry of all sorts. I think it's great to get into March Madness, but but anything can become this this, uh, escape that just leads to the next escape. What sorts of things do we go to to escape rather than persevering prayer? That's what Jesus is highlighting here. Oh, I'm all for recreation. I'm all for good naps. I may be the best napper you've ever met. I've perfected it. But Jesus says what really will restore you, ground you, fortify you, enable you to persevere is prayer. That's what he's highlighting here. The problem is life in this fallen world. And so Jesus says, keep going. You know, often the Bible just basically says that. Press on to the upward call in Christ Jesus. Fight the good fight of faith. Guard the good deposit that's been entrusted to you. Run the race with perseverance. Marked out for us. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we wrestle. Hear all these images. We're in a battle. And half the battle is won by knowing we're in a battle and not being put to sleep or distracted and numb to the fact that we're in a battle. 
within and from without. And so we're warriors as well as children. And what's the solution? Persevering prayer. But how do you get there? Faith in God. The reason we persevere in prayer is because we believe in the God to whom we pray. That's why prayer isn't just some communing spiritually. You know, 9-11 happened and we had a prayer service in Yankee Stadium, an interfaith prayer service, as if to whom you're praying is irrelevant, how you're praying is irrelevant, your access to this God that you decide for yourself is irrelevant, how you do that. No, no, the Bible says the God to whom we pray is the essential reality of prayer. So we don't even focus on our praying. We focus where this passage takes us. You see, so the point is clear. Faith in God leads to persevering prayer, believing God for who he is. So, so let's just walk through this. Verse 2, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. So Jesus gives us an evaluation of this guy's character. He just does what he wants. He's a judge. He's in a position of authority, but he doesn't answer to anybody. And now we have this widow who keeps coming relentlessly, probably because she's in financial difficulty. Maybe because she hasn't gotten any help from her husband's family after he died. And now she needs the judge to help her survive. This is a matter of survival for her. She's got an adversary. Maybe her own family is her adversary, and she needs help here. She's desperate, especially in this situation. Widows were, were in dire straits if they didn't get the help they needed. God has a heart for people who are needy like this. Orphans and widows in their distress. And here we see it again. This widow comes to him and says, give me justice. Give me vindication. And the judge just didn't give her any mind. But after he says, though I neither fear God nor respect man. I got to tell you, I appreciate that. I do. I really appreciate who aren't self people who aren't self-deceived and don't, don't actually have an assessment of themselves that's any better than it actually is. I, I, I really like that about this guy. He's not kidding himself. He's like, yeah, I don't... I don't care about God. I don't care about people. And he's, not, he's not posing. I love that. You know, it's, it's pretty common for pagans to come across in the Bible as shooting straight like that. Sometimes they're self-deceived. But, but I appreciate about this guy. He actually recognizes about himself what Jesus says is true of him. But it doesn't change the way he lives. That's the problem. We all need to come to grips with our duplicity. This guy has, but it doesn't change him. He says, I don't fear God, I don't fear people, but I'm just worn out by this woman. I mean, the imagery here is literally, I don't want her to give me a black eye. I don't want her to beat me up anymore. Not literally, but he's just worn out. He says, I don't want to get worn out. The fact is, he is worn out. He's finally going to say, all right, I just want to get rid of her. She's bothering me. I'll give her justice after all, so she won't bother me anymore. And then Jesus says, here's, here, here's what the unrighteous judge says. That, that's what he says. That's how he handles this. And now, remember how you were assigned papers through school that say compare and contrast? 
Those are two very different things, aren't they? What are the similarities here? And, and what are the differences? What are the contrasting realities? And we've got some similarities between God and this judge, but mostly contrasting reality. The similarities is God, as this judge, is the authority. He's the one who's able to give justice. He's the, the one who's able to vindicate. But God is always acting in accordance with his righteousness, unlike this judge. God does care about people and their plight, like this widow and you. And so the way this judge and God end up looking is God's very different than this judge. Very different. And so, so we look at this judge and we see a man who doesn't care about God or people, but he has the authority that this woman needs, as God does for us. And then there's a comparison and a contrasting image of this woman. So this woman is, is very much like us in our dependence, our neediness, our frailty. She's got no recourse if this judge won't help her. She's in desperate circumstances. And she needs to get to the point where he is actually going to listen to her. So she badgers him. And she goes to him over and over and over again. We don't know how many times, but it was enough where this guy finally says, Uncle! where that expression comes from. What a strange expression. Don't look it up now. Look it up later. Uh, she, she says, I give. I give. All right already, lady. Get out of here. Now, the difference between this woman and us, the similarities are desperate dependence, our neediness. But her desperation is like ours. Her neediness is like ours. But what we can't fall into is thinking that this judge shows us what God is like. God is so different than this judge. So different. This widow desperately needs God, and God cares. God cares. She's desperately needed in absolute dependence, and she perseveres in going to him as we should with God, but never thinking that we badger him and beat him up until he finally says, all right, all right. It's not how God is. If we think that's what Jesus is teaching, or no, he's contrasting. You see what he says? Verse 7, And will not God give justice to his chosen ones, his elect, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he'll give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So, so God is saying, hang in there. Keep going. We're in this together. We're all fighting the good fight together. And isn't that good to know that no temptation is sees you that is in common to man? But then where does Paul take us in 1 Corinthians 10? He says, but God who is faithful will provide a way of escape. The faithfulness of God is what gets us through. Not the amount of faith I have, but the one in whose my, who my faith is, is the one who determines my perseverance. You won't be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, it'll also provide a way of escape that you'll be able to endure it. And there are all kinds of ways we persevere. Like Randy highlighted last week, in the Word, we become men and women of the Word. We fortify our souls through the Word, and our, our understanding of God deepens, and of ourselves, and we have faith increase with deep roots, like Psalm 1 says. We commit ourselves to fellowship. 
We, we do what we're doing right now. This may feel to you just like an event you've attended for an hour and then you go home, but this is a primary means of persevering. Staying home makes you vulnerable to weariness and quitting in a way that coming here doesn't. This fortifies you. Let's hold fast to our confession, Hebrews 10 says, of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You hear that? Gather. Come together. See each other. Hug each other. Cry together. Pray together. Recognize each other, see each other across the sanctuary and give a wave and say, here we go, another week, we're in it together. That's what we're doing here. And he says, as you see the day drawing near, another end time coming of the kingdom focus. Worship, I hope you realize, is warfare. It's not just singing. It's not just singing. We weren't just singing, friends. We were getting ready for war. We were doing warfare just now. Do you think Satan likes what we were just doing? He hates it. I think Satan and demons flee when God's people worship. Not when they sing pretty. You can do that too. That's fine. I'm glad we have people who can do that well. But, but worship is warfare. We're building our faith, deepening our faith as well as expressing our faith. Doing good is a way of deepening our faith. When we put our faith into action and good works, we persevere. Galatians 6, 9. Don't lose heart in doing good, for in due time we'll reap if we do not grow weary. And, and please don't forget that this is just a command. To pray continually is not something you do if you think it's beneficial to you spiritually. It's something God commands because he knows it is, whether you feel like it or not. And, and this parable's a command, right? You ought to pray always. This is what you should do. I don't know if you come to church hearing what you should do. Maybe you don't like that. But the Bible and the Christian life is full of shoulds. And, and here's one. Pray continually. And I must tell you, there's nothing in the Christian life I find more difficult than prayer. Nothing. I, I could go on and on about how challenging is this for me. And I pray, and I'm committed to pray. But it's a battle for me. I, I love reading the Bible. That doesn't take any discipline. I love gathering all, all of you. It does not take any discipline for me to come here. I joyfully, gratefully come here without any difficulty. It doesn't take any discipline. It, it doesn't take discipline for me to give anymore. Financially. It, it doesn't take discipline for me to worship. I love worshiping. It takes discipline for me to pray. Discipline. Oh, man, so often I pray and I, I feel like my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. So often I pray, pray and I go into this theological thing we go into. Well, God knows what's going to happen. He's determined what's going to happen. So what's this whole exercise? And I think that's what Jesus is trying to get at here. Oh, God's sovereign. We're his chosen ones, sovereignly chosen. But how do we work out our faith 
with fear and trembling. We don't work for our faith, but we work out our faith with fear and trembling. And there are means God ordains in the way we accomplish his sovereign purposes. And prayer is a fundamental means of, through which that happens. It's a means of, of, of showing that we're chosen ones and expressing this and deepening this identity. Now, her desperation was personal, likely financial, a matter of survival. It was legal. And ours may include those things as well. And our desires for justice and righteousness, it's fine to want that for yourself. But I think in a Philippians 2, consider others as more important than yourself. And in a kingdom of God sort of way, our desires and our prayers for justice and vindication and for it to be on earth as it is in heaven should have a broader implication than just my personal vindication. This woman has every right to argue and, and, and plead for her personal vindication, but for Christians, it gets bigger than that. And I actually think it gets best when it isn't focused on our personal needs, although that's perfectly right and good. But when we pray as we were in that amazing song, was that a great song we started with? Woo, that was so good. Thanks for doing that, Kenny. Father, let your kingdom come. Father, let your will be done, not just for me, but on this earth. Does it drive you crazy when you see the injustice in our world? Does it just drive you mad when you see the cruelty? and the hatred, and the injustice. We've got to move beyond our personal realities to the big ones, to the kingdom of God realities. And the key to prayer is realizing we're always desperate. Listen to Carl Cool. That's a cool name, even though it's not spelled cool. The key to prayer is not learning to pray when I'm not desperate. It's, that's important, right? I tend to pray when I'm desperate. Even atheists, 80% of atheists admit that they pray. Isn't that crazy? When they're desperate. But I want to pray when I'm not desperate. But listen to what Carl Kuhl says. The key to prayer is not learning to pray when I'm not desperate. The key to prayer is learning I'm always desperate. That's it, isn't it? We get life figured out and some success and things start rolling. We get momentum and we're accomplishing our goals and we're listening to self-help teachers and motivational speakers and we think, man, I got this thing figured out. I'm like Frank Sinatra, I got the world by a tail. Is that what he said? Is that the line? Oh, I got the world by a string, yeah. What's the tail? There's no tail. All right, thanks, Kenny. Have you ever heard Kenny sing Frank Sinatra? It's pretty impressive, but... And Jim Croce. Ask him sometimes. Oh, he hates me now. All right. Um, and so here's the reality. Unlike this judge, we're not motivated by badgering him and wearing him out. We're motivated by the fact that he's good. And he's wise and he's powerful and he really cares about you. And realize Jesus is our model of prayer. And Luke has been highlighting prayer in the life of Jesus throughout. He prays before he receives the Spirit. He spends all night in prayer before selecting the 12. Two parables primarily focus on prayer. Jesus is our example. And what we need to realize is the judge to whom we go and we pray is a judge who loves us, who calls those who've trusted Jesus his chosen ones, his children. He's just, he's compassionate. You need to know when you pray God's for you. And you need to know God's fond of you. 
Listen to how for you he is if you've trusted Jesus, if you're one of his through Christ, which I pray you will be today if you aren't already. He who did not spare his own son, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who is indeed is interceding for us. Jesus is praying on our behalf. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. God is for you. For God so loved the world, this world that hated him, he sent his son to live and die and rise for us. And God's fond of you. Please don't think God's stuck with you because he made a covenant commitment and he'd like to get out of it, but he can't, so he's stuck with you. I don't know if you have people who've loved you in that way in your life. But that's not how God loves. He's fond of you. He likes you. He, he knitted you together in your mother's womb. He, he crafted your unique fingerprints and DNA and exactly who you are as the hairs of your head numbers, knows you by name. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. He's a good Father who loves deeply and intimately and personally and profoundly and generously and expressively and extravagantly. And prayer is so important because it's based in faith, it requires faith, and it deepens faith. The chosen ones, I think, who cry out to him day and night, I don't think there are two kinds of chosen ones, those who cry out day and night and those who don't. I think this is just a description of what God's people are like. Those of us who've gotten to the end of ourselves know that without God, we're done. All we've got is hell to look forward to. All we've got is judgment from our, our righteous judge, we have no meaning, we have no purpose apart from him. Those of us who've gotten to that point where we've gotten to the end of ourselves, like the woman washing Jesus' feet with her tears at his feet, not caring about incurring the scorn of the religious people who are judging her, we're free now. We've gotten to the end of ourselves and we've gotten to the feet of Jesus. And we trust this God to whom we pray, crying out day and night. That's what a Christian is. Someone who doesn't come with their pride intact and their, their agenda for God intact, but desperate for him. And our perseverance is shown through prayer and it is grown through prayer. It's God's means of accomplishing in his perfect will. And so we trust his timing. It just seems so long and protracted sometimes. I think the disciples would be shocked if they knew that it's been going on for 2,000 years after Jesus promised he's coming back. And we, we're at just little window of, of human history, and it can seem so long to us, so we need to trust his timing. The Christian life is a lifelong process. God loves history, so learn to love the process. Even if you're not in the burning bush phase of your ministry, but 
in the 40 years in the wilderness or the 400 in Egyptian captivity. Learn to love the, the journey motivated by God's kindness and patience. Because listen, listen to 2 Peter 3.9. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years. And a thousand years is his one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. When you think, how long, Lord? Remind yourself that one of the reasons it's been taking as long as it has is because he's so patient. His slowness is patience to us. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done in them will be exposed. That day's coming. And every time you start to grow weary of how long it's taking until that day comes, think about your next door neighbor who doesn't know Jesus. And remind yourself that part of the reason it's taking so long Maybe the main part is because God is so slow to anger. And we're his chosen instruments of bringing the news of the ability to flee the wrath to come through our witness. We can be doubtful of his timing. We can be doubtful of his plan. How could this possibly be a good way for things to go in my life, in my friend's life, in, in, my, in my culture's life? How could this possibly be the way? I have a dear, dear friend from back in our Connecticut days, 30 years, 35, 35 years, 38 years ago. And, and Mark and Carol have 10 children, 10 wonderful children. The youngest is six, the oldest is 24. And, and last spring, Carol was feeling very poorly. She went to the doctor, and he said, there's nothing we can do. Let's go home and make yourself comfortable. And five days later, Carol was with Jesus. And Mark was left with ten children. And as he was praying in those few days, as he was watching his wife die at home, he cried out to God and he said, God, heal Carol. Yesterday was the anniversary of her death. He said, heal Carol. He said, Lord, if you heal her, it'll be a miracle, and people will praise you, and people will come to know Jesus through this miracle. How can this not be better than her dying? And he said, it's as if God clearly said to him, Mark, maybe my definition of better is different than yours. That's hard to hear, but that brought him great comfort because he knows it's true. He's a pastor. He preaches the word all the time, and he knows that very often God's definition of better is different than ours. And so you don't want to live according to our economy because the all-wise God is sovereignly working out our lives in a way that includes great suffering and groaning and pain, but there's glory to, to come. And there's ability to be grateful on the way in the midst of the groaning. And so will we have persevering faith 
in the goodness and justice of God seen through persevering prayer? That's the question. You know, the greatest theological dilemma probably in human history is how can a good, all-powerful God let suffering and evil happen in the world? And God's answer to that question is not figuring out all the details of how exactly he's working that out, but trusting him as this good, wise, powerful, compassionate God who loves the way he loves you know, I'm going to teach you a fancy word. Theodicy is, is what I'm talking about. This question, trying to answer this question, how, how can a good, all-powerful God have all this suffering in this world? Why doesn't he stop it? Is he not able to? What, what's he up to? But Jesus allows us to answer the question of the goodness of God. Is he going to solve the, is he going to bring vindication? And he says, yes, if this, this no good judge is willing to do it for this woman just because he got worn out. Don't you think the judge of all the earth who's all wise, all good, all loving, all compassionate isn't going to take care of you and make all things right? He settles that and then he turns the focus from God being on the witness stand to us being on the witness stand. And he said, God is good, believe it, bet the ranch on it. So, in light of that, will he find faith on the earth when he returns? Shown in persevering prayer. The question is not allowed to just be about God. Jesus turns the gaze on us, right? Of course he's going to take care of you, count on it. So will you persevere or will you go for all sorts of solutions to your problems not grounded in persevering prayer? I have a problem with this. I like to fix things fast. I'm really impatient. And I like solutions you can put on a piece of paper. And I like to be a significant part of the solution. So I can get credit for it. Feel good about myself. And God says, no, get on your knees got to tell you, being a pastor and being a dad has been so good for me in this. Because here's something I have learned undeniably. I cannot change one human heart at all. I, I can't bring wisdom when there's foolishness. I can't bring humility when there's pride. I can't bring righteousness when there's sin. I am completely incapable of doing that. One of those podcasts Kenny referred to about this woman who came out of this incredibly entrenched sinful life. Her mother was doing everything she could to help her, her daughter come out of this sinful life and it's as if God said to her, you gonna do this or am I? And if you're gonna trust God to do it, you get on your knees and you pray. That's the solution. I am so grateful for faithful, persevering prayers in our life. We've lost three incredibly faithful, godly women in the past year from our church. Incredible women. Doris Robbins, Jerry Wyrick, and Ruth Dix. Could they be better examples of perseverance? And Richard. Could, could they possibly be better? And what's true of these three women if you knew them at all? They persevered in prayer. There was not a time I met with any of them. They didn't say, I'm praying for you. And if I was ever inclined to doubt it, because we do that, right? I'm praying for you when we're really not. No, they were praying. I'd say, how's your daughter doing? 
How, how, how's that sickness going? How's your heart? Persevering in prayer and the word and fellowship and acts of, I mean, we'll have, do not miss Ruth Dix's memorial service next Friday. Friday. If you can help it. If there's anything you can do about it, you'll be powerfully encouraged. Persevering prayer. 31st, that's Friday, right? 30, 31st, right. Thank you. Uh, isn't it great to have examples of people who pray that way? How great now that we go to the Lord's Supper. How, how great that we now highlight the means by which we pray. We would find nothing but a shut door in judgment if Jesus didn't come and lay down his life and die for us, take our place in his righteousness, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection. And that's what we remember with the Lord's Supper. This is for believers. If you're not a Christian, if you've never trusted Jesus in saving faith, this is one of the very few times in our church we, we say, this isn't for you. And we want you to feel that inability because you've not trusted Jesus. So, so we ask you to respect what this means. This is for those who've trusted Jesus. And if you've never trusted him, all that means is to say, not I, but Christ. Not my righteousness, not my sin, but his righteousness and his death in my place. And I say no to me and myself, and I say yes to Jesus, and his saving work is the God-man who took our place. That's what that means. And if that's what you've done, this table is wide open to you. 